there's a game that I have not played a lot, but every once in a while it's fun to play. It's called Close Up Picture Game. It's where you zoom in on a photo, or a camera does zoom in on a photo and take a very, very close up picture, and you see something, you're supposed to guess what it is, and then you zoom out and you find out what it is. Have you all played this game before or seen this? Well, you're about to right now, okay? We have slide one. Eddie, if you could also hit the lights down. You're going to see a picture, and you need to think right now, what do you think this is? Somebody said a snake. It's a good guess. Yeah, I actually thought that as well. When I first saw this, I thought, you know, that looks like the top of a microphone, maybe? Anyone else? What? A fly. What part of a fly? It's eye. What's the next picture? A dragonfly's eyeball. It's interesting, right? When you first saw something, you were thinking, oh, maybe that's a microphone, this or that. Let's do one more. This is not because, uh, you know, I want to play games all morning, but this has a point, okay? This is going somewhere. What do you all think this is? It's what? A moth. We got a moth. Looks like an eye of some sort, maybe? Anyone else? Let's look at the next picture. This is actually a galaxy. So let's just pause with this picture just for a second, because when I look at the first one, the zoom in photo, I immediately notice certain things. And they've actually done studies on these tests to notice the way our brains work when you have a zoomed in photo that based on that context, your eyes are going to be drawn to certain things. And one of the things that I did not notice was that when I look at the top left hand corner, you see it there, but I didn't notice it at all. Do you see the ring that goes around that's now very obvious here, this light band. And now that I see that band there, it was like, well, yeah, of course, that looks like some sort of galaxy or star formation. And sure enough, that's, that's what it was. And now that I look back at the smaller zoomed in photo, it's as if I can't see that smaller zoomed in photo the same way anymore. There's no way that's an eyeball anymore. There's no way that's a moth or some design or pattern. Eddie, you can turn the lights back on and take the picture off. The, uh, the point of that is I think that when we zoom out, there's times where it changes our perspective for everything. Number four, I think. Yeah. Thank you. And so I think this is a helpful way for not only us to understand ourselves, the world, the next book of the Bible we're about to study, which is Ruth. I think this is going to help you understand your life. So let's open our Bibles to Ruth. It's the eighth book in the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that first five books is the collection called the Law. Then we start history books with Joshua, Judges, and then right after Judges is this short little book called Ruth. And if you're looking in your Bibles, go to page 222 and these black ones around you and you can find Ruth. And as we start this new study of this short little book in Ruth, what we're going to first do this morning is we want to zoom in and get the very close-in picture. And then we want to zoom out. And so you're going to hear the beginning of the story zoomed in, 
And then you're going to zoom out and see the whole story from the end, which isn't a normal way to read a book. Read the beginning and then skip over all the details and then go to the end. But that's what we're going to do today. And then we're going to see how that has massive implications for our lives. And so let's start with zooming in and reading the first five verses and unpacking all these little details that we see in these first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there were, was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. When we zoom into this text, we need to start with the very first phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. This is our setting and context for this story. The days of the judges is the book that you turn to the left. So you turn one page over, and you're in the book of Judges. That's the days of the judges, which is why in your Bible it's chronologically put Joshua, then Judges, and then Ruth. But Ruth is actually inserted in sometime during the judges' book. And if you do turn, turn one page over, so, page 221 in the Black Bibles. Many, many people have said that the very last verse of Judges is the summary of the days of the Judges. So what's going on when we open up the book of Ruth and we zoom in and find out that it's during the days of the Judges? You see in verse 25 of Judges 21, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that, my friends, summarizes all of the days of the judges. You're supposed to go from that verse, then turn your Bible over and see, in the days when there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, you may have never read Judges before. I'm sure that might be the case for some of you in this room. Others of you have. But let's just summarize it this way. The days of the judges, if you didn't get it from that last verse, it's a dark time. When we start zooming our lens into this story, the picture gets dark. No king, no one really obeying anybody, everybody just doing whatever they please. Remember that idea though, there's no king in the days of the judges. Let's zoom into the next part of the passage. It says that there was a famine in the land and you want to immediately ask, well, what land? And then we're told right after that that the land is where a man from Bethlehem. So the land of Israel, the land of Bethlehem, which is a smaller city, a smaller little town or village. Bethlehem's not a big town. And it's in the greater land of Israel at this time. And so the land of Israel, God's promised land, has a famine in it. So we've already seen that this is in the days of the judges, where there's no king and we've already zoomed in and, and the picture is getting dark. Well, the next thing we find out is it's actually getting much darker. As we zoom in further, we see that the picture is 
of famine. And when you read famine, you should have already read the previous books of the Bible, not just Judges, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in those books, those first five books, you know from the first pages of the Bible that the land is cursed because of sin. And that when the land is not producing the way it should, it is because of sin. Furthermore, you hop over to Deuteronomy, and for many of you, this is very familiar because two weeks ago, when I was gone, Dustin gave an excellent exposition of Isaiah, and he told you three blessings that come in Deuteronomy 28. So to refresh your memory, or for those of you that weren't there, if you obey the Lord God, blessing one, the fruit of your womb will be blessed. If you obey the Lord God, blessing two, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed, meaning a bountiful harvest. Blessing number three, the Lord will grant your enemies to be defeated. You will have victory over your enemies. Some of you hopefully remember this. The three blessings that Dustin walked us through from Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're in the, the days of the judges. There's no king. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Are they obeying God? So when you read famine, should you not start thinking, this is God's judgment. This is God's curse. Not just the general Genesis 3 curse, but this is the curse on Israel. Famine means that they're not obeying, that they don't have a bountiful harvest. And so the further you zoom into the picture, the darker it is getting. Let's take it a step further. After we hear about the famine in the land, we hear about a man in Bethlehem in Judah, who went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Let's zoom into this verse. A man from Bethlehem. The irony is dripping at this point. Why? Bethlehem means house of bread. So a man from the house of bread is leaving the house of bread because, well, frankly, there's no bread. And where is he going? He's going to Moab. Again, there's a context. If you know anything about Moab, it is the arch enemies, one of them, of the Israelites. And what were the blessings God would give you? A fruitful womb, uh, keep that in mind. Fruitful land and victory over your enemies. Instead of having victory over his enemies, he's joining and living with his enemies. Living in Moab? That's what you should be thinking. No, Moab, no! What is he doing? Moving to Moab. That's crazy. I don't know if we have a parallel here in the United States, but just imagine a terrible place to live. And that's where he's going to live, to live amongst those people. They especially, the Moabites, were prone to worship a fertility god. So let's move to Moab. And, you know, who knows? Did they worship the fertility god with them? They did all kinds of crazy sexual practices, thinking that they would rain down blessing and have all kinds of children. That's, that's one of the things the Moabites did. And on the surface, I, I, want, I want to be sympathetic for a moment. On the surface, especially the men in the room or anybody that just thinks like, I don't see what's wrong with Elimelech. There's famine in the land. He's, he's taking care of his family. He's providing. What's, what's the problem here? Almost every scholar seems to agree. It seems like the majority consensus is that Elimelech is in sin. The further you zoom into the story, it's getting darker. That the very family that we're going to focus in on in this story, he is running from God. He should be repenting of his ways. When you read all of chapter 1, there's 11 times the Hebrew word for repent, turn, or return, or turn back is used in this chapter. 
Why? Because chapter one is trying to tell you that you have a family that is not turning back. They are turning away. They are running from God. Do you remember Genesis chapter 26 that Adam read? There was a famine in the land. Oh, no, no, not like the famine at the days of Abraham, but this famine, and God said, stay in the land. Stay in the land. Is that what Elimelech's doing? Is he turning back to the Lord? If there's a famine in the land, he should know, oh, we should repent of our sins, and God will rain down blessing on us. Is that what he's doing? No. Instead, he's running and taking his whole family. And he's moving eastward, by the way. If you know your ancient Near Eastern geography, you know that he is moving from a land in Bethlehem and moving eastward toward Moab. Dozens of times in the Old Testament, I've pointed this out in previous studies, but dozens of times, moving east is a sign of judgment. Being cast out of the garden is moving eastward. When God judges um, the two sons uh, that are in Genesis chapter 4 and Cain kills his brother Abel. He moves him out eastward. It's just a continued pattern throughout the Old Testament of God judging and exiling and moving out from, instead of moving west, but moving east. When you read this story and you zoom in on the details, you notice that you have a time period with no king. You have famine in the land. You have a family moving east away from the land of bread because there is no bread in their land And if that's not ironic enough, check out the next verse in verse 2. The name of the man was, finally, who is this guy? It's Elimelech. And then the name of his wife is Naomi. The name of his two sons were Mahon and Chilion. They were the Aphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The name Elimelech. You'll never believe it. It means, my God is king. Now, I know no one of you did this, even when I told you what the name meant, but this could be a moment where you either scoff, ha, or laugh, ha, one of the two. Because when you find out that the guy we're talking about, his name means, my God is king, you're supposed to, by this point in the story, already know, no, he is not, yeah, That's like saying the Chicago Bears are going to win the Super Bowl this year. That's not happening, guys. Say it all you want. It's not happening. My God is king. No. This guy is doing anything but having God as his king. This whole generation of people in the days of the judges don't have any God as their king. So saying that God is his king is something that is ironic and preposterous. That this is who this guy is. Now, some of you, at this point, let's just, let's question this interpretation for a moment. Are we zooming in too far and making much of this guy's name? I mean, this is just what his parents named him. Is that really a, a significant point of the story? Is it just a coincidence that his name means, my God is king? I think that's a really good question, actually. But I don't think that the details of this story in particular get us off the hook from missing this detail. If you look at the names of the rest of the family, I think you can decide for yourself if Elimelech's name, meaning my God is king, has some deeper meaning and significance. For example, Naomi's wife means what? It's actually in most of your Bibles. There's a footnote at the very bottom. Naomi means pleasant. When you get to the end of chapter one, 
Naomi is so distraught and angry and upset with God that she does not want to be called Naomi anymore. She's not Miss Sweetie Pie. She is bitter. She says, call me Mara. Don't think for a second that if you see that little clue, that little hint, that possibly the name means something. In the early chapter of Ruth, we see the significance of Ruth of, of Naomi's name. So could it be that Elimelech is also this ironic figure? Oh, my God is king. Or let's take the two sons, Mahon, Mahlon, and Chilion. Now, I first read them and thought, sound like cool names. If we have some more boys, maybe, you know, Mahlon and Chilion. And then I found out what they mean. Mahlon means sickness. Chilion means death. Not cool anymore. Could you imagine me naming my children swine flu and walking pneumonia? That's basically what these guys' names are. Please do not name your kids Mahon and Chilion to be like, I was just looking for Bible names. You should probably find out what they mean first. In other words, when you read these names in verse 2, my God is king, I'm a pleasant sweetie pie of a woman, and I have two sons named sickness and death. Then you read verse 3 when you zoom in a little tighter. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, sickness and death. And guess what happens? They took Moabite wives, the name of one which was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. If at this moment you are not feeling the pain of this woman, Naomi, then you have no soul, right? There's something wrong with your heart. The tighter we focus in on these first five verses and look at every little detail, the more dark and downward our descent of pain and suffering that this family is experiencing. Surely many of you in this room have been in similar places where all you see is darkness, no light, no hope, no end of the tunnel. It just is going on and on. Her husband is dead. Oh, but at least she's got two strong, strapping sons that will care for her. Nope. They decide to marry Moabite women. Ah, Moabite women, are you kidding me? Clearly forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy. Every which way you look at this story, it is awful, awful, awful. One more step further down into the depths of this pit that Naomi and her family is falling. Marrying a Moabite woman is not at all ideal, if you want to put it that way. And then, do they have children? Does Naomi now have this great abundance of fruitful blessing to the Moabite goddess who's raining down fertility? The two sons die. And the end of this first part is telling you helplessness hopelessness, nothing. She has nothing. You read to the end of chapter one and this is exactly the word she's gonna say. I have nothing, I am empty. These two Moabite daughter-in-laws are not raising her spirits. She does not count them for anything as you read chapter one. All she has now is them. No security, no protection, Nothing. That's the end of part one. When you zoom in to the first five verses, here's the picture you see. Dark, 
devastating pit. That's it. There's no hope in this passage. There's no glimmer of light. There's no prospects of a future. No hints or clues of anything else going on that would give us reason to think something's going to turn. But then we zoom out. We look at the second part of this message. And over the course of the next few weeks, you're going to see what leads to an amazing reversal of this circumstance. And I know this might seem weird, but we're going to skip to the end of the book. Instead of going through the rest of the story, I want us to just skip to the very end. And over the course of the next few weeks, if you come back, you'll see what led to this reversal. But what you're going to find out at the very end of this book is a mirrored image of the first five verses. So you all ever looked into a mirror? I would assume so. You've looked into a mirror and you find that it's the same thing, but it's in opposite direction. Like I try and sometimes shave my head, you know, and cut my own hair because it's cheap and all I do is have short hair, right? And then sometimes I'm like trying to trim and then I'm like going the wrong way. Do you all know what I'm talking about? When you try and do things in the mirror, it's the opposite direction. That's exactly what this is like. The end and the beginning are like looking at each other in the mirror, except they're opposite, they're backwards. The story of Ruth is essentially, here's the start and here's the, the end, and something in the middle is going to take all of this downward descent and flip it all the way back. So today, we're going to see the whole big picture when we zoom out. You ready? You ready to see what's going to be the mirror image? A story that started with hopelessness that ends with bright, gleaming hope. A story that was about sickness and dying is going to end with birth and new life. A story that started with signs of God's curse is going to drip with fountains of God's blessings. That's what I mean. From death to life. From hopeless to hope. From sick and dying to birth and life. Let's read the last few verses starting in chapter 4 verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women in the community, so they're back in Bethlehem at this point. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Do you remember how the story began? In the days of the judges, a time period when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, a time when there was no king over Israel. Is that how our story started? What's the very last word of our story? 
David. His name means beloved. David, the beloved king over Israel, is how the story ends. In the days when there was no king, this story is going to end with the greatest king that Israel has ever seen. Do you see what the story is telling us? In the days when there was no king, in the days when everyone was doing whatever they wanted, in the days when the darkness could not get much darker, when it seemed like God did not care, when it seemed like God was not at work, when God's plans seemed like they were not pressing forward, God was at work. That's what the book of Ruth is about. In the days of the judges, there was a plan going on. And it's going to lead to the birth of David. Isn't that phenomenal? That's what Ruth's trying to tell you. When you read the first few verses and you see how dark it gets, it's because the light at the end is so bright in comparison to the backdrop of this pain and suffering. God is, in fact, working all things for good in the book of Ruth. He is the sovereign God over the universe. When you zoom out and you see that he is orchestrating a plan far beyond what you could ever imagine, it changes everything. Your perspective of the little details can never be seen the same again. What did we do when we started this message? You looked at that picture. Some of you thought it was a snake. Some of you thought it was a microphone. You zoom out like, oh, that's a dragonfly. You can't see that picture the same again. But let's not stop there. When we zoom out, there's not just the connection between there was no king, guess what? God will provide a king for Israel. But remember how the last part of verse 5 ends. Chapter 1. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. No sons, no husband, no children, no grandchildren, nobody to carry on the family line. Please wrap your mind in ancient Near Eastern culture and realize this woman has nothing Everything that she could possibly want and hope for, for her future and her family's future, is gone. What are the first lines of this last section of this book? Mirror image, again. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. No husband, no children, the exact opposite. Boaz steps in. Ruth gets pregnant. Blessing is raining down upon this family. All the blessings that were absent, all the curses that were all over the place in chapter 1 are now gone in chapter 4. Naomi not only gets a new son named Boaz through marriage, and then not only gets a grandson named Obed. But the text makes it quite clear that's not even the best part of the story. When you look at verses 14 and 15, the great reversal is that she is blessed by God because she has Ruth. You see in verse 15, God gave you life. He brought your family out of the grips of death and has given you and restored to you life, Naomi. 
Your daughter-in-law has so loved you that she is worth more to you than seven sons. And at this moment, you just drop your draw. Wow. Seven sons. Seven's the number of perfection in the Hebrew culture. This Moabite woman, remember who we're talking about. Arch enemy woman, Moabite woman, Ruth. These Israelite women are now saying, Ruth is worth more to you than seven sons. You now have a perfect family is is the, the simple translation of what you're saying. You had no family. You had no hope. Now you have the perfect family because of Ruth. Friends, see and wonder, this story is good. And we haven't even figured out how it happened. Come back next week. And you thought the teaser would be the ending. No, the teaser is to figure out what happened in the middle. And this, my friends, is what happens when we zoom out and get the entirely different perspective. This is part two. Zooming out. Getting a better eternal context. So finish part three. We've looked zooming in. We've looked zooming out. Now we just need to conclude, what does this matter for you and for me, for this church? I think this story is fantastic. I'm excited to teach it. Is that obvious? Like, this is a very well-written, theologically rich, wonderful story. It is not merely to entertain, although I think it should, even if you didn't scoff and laugh at the certain parts. Read it again later, and maybe you will. This story is not primarily to entertain us. It is to help you and I see our own story. All of us need to, right now, admit, humble ourselves, and confess that far too often we zoom in on our details and circumstances. And all we see is darkness. All we see is hopelessness. All we see is the pit. So many of us are bitter and angry, and we even shake our fist at God, but it is precisely because you do not zoom out and see the wider story. How many of you have felt depressed when you look in and you look down? I am firmly convinced that each and every one of us, if you go zoom in deep enough to each of our hearts, including my very own heart, you will not like what you see. Keep going in. Keep exploring the motives for why you did what you did last night or today. Keep diving in deeper to what you think are these wonderful, righteous acts, and you will find them to be filthy rags, my friend. The further we zoom in, the further we see a pit of darkness and blackness All would be hopeless if that's all we ever see. And so many of you, you're struggling day in and day out because that's all you're looking at. We could do this corporately as a church. Embassy Church is by no means and never will be perfected on this side of Christ's return. If you would like, I can help you. Zoom in at certain areas that our church is weak, at certain areas that we need to grow in, So whether it's individually, zooming in your life or zooming in our church, we could pick very easily things that we're struggling with. But my friend, it would do all of us a disservice, both in your individual life 
And in the corporate life of this church, if all we do is stare in, in, in at our sin, pull back. See your sin. See the curse of sin. See the pain and suffering and circumstance of this world in a much larger picture. And when God, by his Holy Spirit, grants us this, it changes everything when we zoom out. What happens to your questions of God? When you say, God, what are you doing? How could a loving and powerful God allow these things to happen in my life? What do your questions about the darkness look like when you pull back out and you see that behind the black darkness is the most gleaming, gleaming, shining light like the sun? You can't even look at it for a moment without being blinded by its glory and its brilliance. You even see that here in this story. The last little segment of this story, the genealogy of David. Do you all see this? Chapter 4, verses 18, 19, and 20. I don't need to read the names again, but the whole point of that little tagline at the end of this story is to tell you that this little story of a small, insignificant family is accomplishing something far bigger than you could ever dream of when they're out in Moab. And Elimelech is falsely leading his family eastward, away from God. Have you ever been hurt by other people's decisions? As far as we can tell, Naomi didn't do anything. Who knows, maybe she's praying for her husband the whole time. We know nothing. Elimelech has made a decision for their family, and Naomi is the one that is suffering for it. Has that ever happened to you? Been hurt by the decisions others have made? Have you been hurt by your own decisions? But the end of the story is the genealogy of David, which leads us to Matthew chapter 1, which after the Ruth study is done, you will, if you're here on the first Sunday of December, notice that Ruth finds herself in the genealogy not just of David, but of Jesus Christ, the greater David, the Messiah. So my friend, if you're going to understand Ruth, you need to not just zoom back and see the greater story of Ruth. You need to zoom even further back and realize that there's a much bigger picture going on and it's all about Jesus. So let's finish in this way. A few weeks ago, I had the wonderful privilege of visiting Allstate Corporation and giving a talk to them about why a loving God would allow pain and suffering and evil in the world. And as I read Ruth this week, I was very acutely thinking about those things. Why would a loving God allow what verses one through five describe for us? Death, sickness, sin, sin leading to other bad choices that are devastating to a family. And all of us have looked at the pain and darkness in this world and seen ourselves, yep. That's my story too. If that's true, then all of us probably at some point or another ask the question, so what does the loving God of the Bible do about pain, evil, and suffering in the world? I'm not going to give the whole talk that I gave at Allstate, but I want to give you the last little segment of it, the Jesus part. I asked this final question to the workers at Allstate, and I ask it to you. What should God go through in order for you to be convinced that he is a God who understands, loves, and cares about us in our suffering? What do you think? If God is loving and powerful, what do you, what do you think God would need to go through for you to be convinced that he does in fact care, that he is worthy of your trust, 
that he does have a plan, and that that plan is good in spite of all the pain and suffering in the world. And so let's imagine that all of us in this room, we collectively put our heads together. And we say, you know, I think that if God is going to understand us, one person might say, he should experience homelessness. He should go days without having any food and constantly be moving from place to place and have no real place to lay down his head. Maybe another person pipes up and they say, you know, I've experienced a lot of grief in this world, so I think he should have to experience the loss of losing a family member or a close friend like we read about in Ruth or you've experienced in your own life. And then somebody who's been outcast from society, they they speak up and they say, listen, I think if God is going to understand our pain and suffering, then I think he should face a major social, social stigma. He should have to deal with false accusations and slander, like being the child born out of wedlock, or being a drunkard, or maybe even being possessed by a demon. And then a Holocaust victim stands up in the room and says, you know, I think that if God's going to understand suffering, then he should be a Jew. Another person pipes up and says, I grew up in an occupied territory and I think that if God's going to understand suffering, that he should be brought under an oppressive foreign regime with no rights. A few others say, well, we've been abused by people. And so we think that God should have to experience physical pain and violence, humiliation, abandonment, betrayal by the people that he's loved by the most. And then those perpetrators who do all that abuse, they should never get caught and never be punished. Further person speaks up and says, I think he should have to experience the pain and loss of losing someone that dies too early. He should be murdered in his prime so he knows what it's like to not live a full life. And then another says he should have to experience chronic pain because they've experienced chronic pain their whole life. He should be tortured with an extended torture, with a long and slow and difficult death. A few religious people say, well, I think that if God wants to understand my suffering, he should have to experience what it's like to pray and pray and have God be silent. And then what if, at this moment, everybody in the room agrees and says, yes, Let's collectively pull all of that suffering together. Then and only then would God know what it's like to suffer in this world. Then and only then would God provide an adequate solution for suffering. And maybe then I'd be able to trust him. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not sure that somebody has actually already experienced every single thing I just listed, it's because you know nothing about the God of the Bible. His name is Jesus. For in fact, every single thing I listed came out of the gospel stories of Jesus Christ's suffering for us. We do not have a God who is high and mighty on his throne, looking down at our pain and suffering and saying, that's none of my business. No, he gets his hands dirty. He comes down off his throne. And as Hebrews 2 says, Jesus Christ made like us in every respect, tested and suffered in every way that we are so that he is able to help those who are tested and suffer. The Christian message of the Bible, the message I think that is being alluded to here in Ruth, 
is that the problem of pain and suffering is flipped on its head and the great reversal moment is when Jesus comes down into the world and turns everything backwards. He breaks the power of pain and suffering. When you look into his face and see what he suffered for you, how can you shake your fist at God and say, how God could you let that happen to me when all of us should be shaking our fist and say, God, how could you let that happen to Jesus? And I know without talking to any of you any further, this does not answer all of our questions. It does not answer the question about why you suffered. I don't think as we study Ruth, we should try and figure out all of the reasons why pain and suffering happened to them. But I do think that the message of Jesus and his suffering for us does answer the most important and big questions. Can you trust God? Are God's plans good? Does God actually love us? Yes. Yes. And yes. And the only way you can answer that is by zooming out and seeing Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come now with grateful and humble hearts and give you thanks. We give you thanks for what you have already clearly revealed in the Bible. We give you thanks that we now know that the whole point of Ruth is the way Jesus has reversed death and brought forth life. God, we're so thankful that Jesus Christ took on death, even though he was so undeserving of the curse and pain of death, and such a difficult death that he experienced, one that most all of us will never have to go through. But he did it out of love for us. He did it to change our hearts. He did it to change the world. And God, we're thankful that we now know the gospel, the greater, wider story, that we can zoom out and we can see at the center of that story is a cross. And regardless of where our story starts, no matter how deep the pit, no matter how dark the picture, God, I pray that every single person in here would repent of staring in and down and zooming into their own circumstances and they would pull back and see the light of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Believe in him, God. I pray that all of us would have our faith freshly stirred up, our hearts quickened and affectionately loving Jesus this morning. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel. We're so undeserving of these gifts. And we pray, God, now that as we take the Lord's Supper, we will do such in an honorable way to honor your son, Jesus. In his name. Amen.